Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Athletic. The race is on, and another piece of the driver market puzzle has fallen into place, with Joe Guanyu continuing with Sauber in 2024, while there's intrigue heading into the Singapore Grand Prix weekend, with a much-vaunted Flexi-Wing technical directive coming into effect. I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to explain what that all means are Mark Hughes and Val Harunji. Well, Val, welcome back. We haven't had you on for a bit. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, I did wake up 15 minutes before the podcast recording and found out there was a time set and scrambled to get my brain and my words in order so we'll see we'll see if that's if that's paid off at all well listeners who've heard you before will be surprised there's any effort to get the words and brain in order before a podcast appearance but uh, that's what means we never know what's gonna happen and mark hughes looks like someone who's been uh, been up for much much longer probably walking the dog that kind of thing I've been up for hours and I have walked a dog, yeah. Um, but um, I've done lots of things, including um, correspondence with bureaucracy, which is always good fun. Yeah, that's always fun. Well, I've been up for the longest because I've been going for 29 hours solid because I flew, I've flown to Singapore and for some reason I didn't feel like sleeping on the plane. So You win. <laughs> so, so I win. I've been better prepared than the rest of you. So, uh, yeah, going to do the podcast and then uh, go and hunt out Scott Mitchell Malm for a, a spot of... I was going to say dinner. It's 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 dinner in Singapore normal time terms, but of course, this uh, this whole race weekend is in a slightly strange region of time where pretty much it's on European time. I tend to end up in the middle, kind of on a Middle East kind of time for some reason, just because you just run out of things to do. But anyway, people don't want to hear about that. Let's get on with the uh, the matter at hand, Val. Joe Guanyu is going to be back at Sauber in 2024 for his third season in F1. He won't be carrying the Alfa Romeo colours anymore, of course, but very much the same team. Now, this deal took a little bit longer to come together than perhaps expected, but is it the right decision to keep him on? I'm always I'm always happier about a, a contract renewal when there's some sort of team identity change because it means you still get that little bit of buzz of a, of a driver showing up in new, slightly unfamiliar colours, which will happen now, whatever colors sauber is running next year they really should go back to that weird blue from the latter part of the last decade or like gray from the earlier part of the last decade some of those gray saubers like the was it the 2013 one that nico hulkenberg campaigned i think i think they should go all the way back go for 1993 plain black with a little bit uh, on it or the 94 that the tissot car look really really good so i like my early saubers yeah but that i think that plain black's a little bit like Mercedes associated, isn't it? Concept by Mercedes Benz, as it said on the side. Yeah, so that would would feel a little bit like pretender. Whereas you know the the blue stuff, there's there's heritage in that of signing fifteen drivers for one seat and that kind of thing. Um, in terms of the like the actual value of the signing, I think I fall on the on the boring side of I can see why they did it. I also could see if they hadn't done it, why they hadn't done it. It, it is 
an interesting kind of decision in that it comes after speculation did sort of unexpectedly ramp up and maybe as part of the negotiation process that Alpha slash Sauber, Sauber was was seriously looking at other candidates and two main names came up in Aston Martin F1 reserve, uh, Felipe Drugovic, who is the reigning Formula 2 champion, and uh, Zauber's long-term protege, Teo Porcher, who is very likely to succeed Felipe Drugovic as the uh, Formula 2 champion. And I I could see them going with with both of those candidates over Joe. Like, there's there's cases to be made. I don't think particularly complicated cases, but also Joe Guan Yu has acquitted himself well enough to where... I could I could see why you just don't want to rock the boat and don't want to change anything and don't see that he's done anything to really warrant replacing. Even if we take whatever financial considerations that aren't available to us in full money terms into account, uh, Joe, especially over one lap, has continued to run Valtteri Bottas pretty closely. I think, Ed, you've done the math and it's something like a tenth and a half over an eight, 80 second lap on average? Yeah, something like that. It's, it's actually quite a difficult comparison to do because it's so messy, the sale of qualifying data this year, that you can actually slice and dice it all sorts of ways. But he, yeah, he's he's slower on average than Bottas, mm-hmm. but not by a, a country mile. And Bottas, of course, outqualified Lewis Hamilton about one third of the time across five years at Mercedes. So he's no slouch. Yeah, that was, that was exactly exactly the, the point I was going to make. Even like that's... One of the ways available to us as F1 pundits and trying to evaluate drivers is sort of, you know, see like for like. Driver A is this much quicker than driver B. Driver B is this much quicker than driver C. So driver A is this much quicker than driver C. I don't, I'm not entirely sure it works in this case because if you t- take the full transitive thing, if you just assume that Valtteri Bottas over one lap at Mercedes, is the same quality as he is over one lap in Alfa Romeo, then actually Zhou Guan Yu is not like an elite qualifier, but a really good qualifier. And I do, my presumption is that Bottas' single lap four may have dropped a little bit due to the particularities of the Henville machine. But still, you know, it's it's good and to run in that he hasn't got. Also, the fact he hasn't got Lewis Hamilton to benchmark himself against and push him on, so I imagine that probably has a factor as well. Um, for some reason, I'm always like, I'm always, I struggle to believe how much that really helps. Like all the drivers say that they like to measure themselves up against the best of the best. I always suspect that they'd much rather have a teammate who they destroy by a second and a half every weekend. But I, oh, I, they, I, I they like that. They like that. Yeah. But when you've got the data there in front of you, that's a really good way that's to true. refine that's what true. you're doing and learn. So I was more thinking of it in that uh, in those sorts of terms rather than uh, yeah the motivating factor. That was a very Luddite answer for me. And I'm going to I'm gonna say another Luddite thing. I mean, you have the data of the, of the lap time comparison. Honestly, he's felt, Joe has felt closer than a tenth and a half off. Well, than a tenth and a half off, even though the numbers say what they say. But I think he's been really a very decent match to, to Bottas over one lap particularly. And over, over race distances, you would expect a seasoned veteran like Bottas to make much more of the circumstances and the situations. Uh, there have been just a fair few weekends where Joganyu is the better Alfa Romeo Zauber driver, which is important, which is impressive. So that's you know that's basically the the case for for keeping him on is that you know he's he's run the the team's veteran lead driver close. He's been a safe and reasonable pair of hands. Now the 
the contrary of that to me is it feels at the start, it sort of felt like the season was going to go in a different way. Like he was not just going to run Bottas close, but honestly almost looked like he had drawn level. And with a driver who's still relatively early in his Formula One development curve, that is something you really want to see them consolidate. And it's it's something that you expect to start showing up, not just in practice sessions and qualifiers or whatever, but showing up in, in race trim. And instead, it feels like Bottas has sort of turned that process backwards. It feels like Bottas has now consolidated himself again. But yeah, so it's a fine decision. Uh, the only, there is a philosophical question I have about it, which is maybe it is already time for Zauber to start looking for drivers that like young superstars that Audi will have under its wing as, you know, these elite prospects to develop. I think maybe now is already the time to do that. And I, I find it difficult to see Joe racing for Audi, but We'll see, maybe. I mean, and if, if if they if they see it as a possibility, then obviously this is this is also valuable in that regard. Yeah, I think he'd have to take some big steps to still be there come twenty twenty six. Always possible, but I, how how do you see it, Mark? I think probably I'd agree with Val's characterization, and I think Joe made a a decent case to stay on, but it wasn't an unanswerable one, and he was probably helped by the lack of really really strong upside, strong advantaged alternatives should we say that you can say definitely yeah they do a really good job obviously I don't think Joe's the quickest driver in the world he's brisk but he's not stunningly fast but he works very well with a team he's quite intelligent in his approach and methodical he can be quite consistent most of the time he doesn't make many mistakes so he's a good safe pair of hands driver and and he's still evolving so I guess that's all kind of conflated come together to put him in a situation where there's there's not really any point in them moving him on certainly not for next year he hasn't made it a no-brainer to, to re-sign him, but as you say, the alternatives aren't, aren't really making a, no, a no-brainer case for themselves either. You know, if you had the equivalent of a, a 28 Charles Leclerc um, Formula 2 champion, he might not still be there. Um, it, as you touched on, as you both touched on, it's all about benchmarking and, and where you think the car really is and where you think Valtteri Bottas really is. Um, you know, is it somewhere between... It's just not a great car. Valtteri's doing absolutely the same job he was doing at Mercedes, and um, in which case Joe's done a great job. Uh, or as, as Valtteri's performance trailed off a little bit, and as the car actually better than it looks, that's also perfectly feasible. Um, it's a sophomore F1 season. I think is quite noteworthy and, and praiseworthy that he's really sort of got all the the hard points together very well. He, he, he doesn't really look as inexperienced as he is. Um, he's quite analytical about the car. He's got a good rapport with the people on the team. Yeah, the team really, really like him. They really like yeah, him. Yeah, they do. He's conscientious, ambitious, good feedback. Um, so, yeah, they, he's got a lot of boxes ticked there. But is there anything to suggest that special spark? I've not seen it so far. Um, and, yes, they've resigned them. But as we touched on, they, they have looked around it quite seriously at a couple of other options. So, yeah, probably last chance saloon going into next year, I would say. The interesting alternative, really, Val, who you have touched on is Pusher, isn't he? Because he's going to win F2, not absolutely certain, but 25 points ahead, I think he has 39 to play for. So he should close it out. 
Yes, I know it's his third year, but he's going to win F2. We know Pusher is a very quick driver. I think probably in terms of ultimate potential, he's got greater potential than Joe. But what he doesn't offer is that sort of cast iron behind the scenes, really good way of working, really fitting in well uh, set of qualities that Joe has absolutely nailed down. I think Pusher is a much more, um, has much more to prove on that score, shall we say. So, do you think it's a little bit unambitious they're not doing it? He's a Sauber Academy driver. He's winning F2. You can't really ask more than that of an F1 aspiring graduate. But I I, I think you can. And I think the historical precedent shows that you can. I mean, you will remember uh, Pierre Gasly's GP2 title that Red Bull deemed insufficient to promote him to Formula 1. And that was a sophomore season, but that was very much a similar sort of situation where you go into into the season as the clear favorite and you win it but you don't you don't win it by enough and you're given way too much trouble pace-wise by a rookie teammate now in Pierre Gasly's case there was Antonio Giovinazzi who was most people's real revelation from that from that campaign and again for for Taylor share I'd say that that is you know Victor Martins who has come up many many times now, from from my math specifically on this podcast, but who has been, I think, in terms of like specifically single lap pace, really maybe a little bit of a problem for Percher because you know, over single lap, Martins has made, made a bigger impression in a in a shorter amount of time. Even though Percher has, by and large, proven very very effective in races, but he's also made a a couple of very notable mistakes, and it's. It is a season that if you rerun it multiple times, which is I don't, like a weird way to look at it, but if you just run it with the same sort of built-in pace multiple, multiple, multiple times, I don't think Borchere wins even 50% of them. I think he maybe wins more than anybody, but he's not... He, he will be a good champion, but he will not be a champion who's really dwarfed the competition. If you do an end-the-season ranking, you know, there are seasons where... You look at the whole field and you just know number one goes to the champion and anything else is showing off. And then you have seasons where you really do think of the number one independent of the title race outcome. Like obviously taking it into account, but it doesn't completely sway your decision making. And I think this Formula 2 season for me is, is very much that. Although I, I couldn't tell you who's who's done a better season than Porsche, probably on the balance of things nobody, and that is reflected in the in the results. But I, I would have to think about it. And I I think a big part of the reason why he will not be in the Zauber next year is that a lot of people have looked at his season relative to all the other Formula One driver Formula Two drivers, and they'll they'll go, I have to think about whether he's been the the best of them. And it is year three. It's not even like it's not even year two, it is year three. Uh I look, a Formula Two title is a Formula Two title. I shouldn't be too negative about that but i can i can't really fault them for not seeing this as a cast iron case like if 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 i want to see more from joe i also want to see more from from Porsche and this like the stability argument is never the most attractive one but in a case like this you you really can't fault it and also again it's not like joe is stability without performance so yeah yeah, I think I'd agree with that. It's a bit of a blow for Pusher, you'd have to say, because while there is the commercial dimension and Joe does have something to offer uh, financially and in terms of being the Chinese driver, it's been good for Sauber in terms of getting in sponsors that want to um, have some penetration in China as well. So it's not just Chinese sponsors coming in, but actually 
sponsors trying to go the other way uh, have played a part. But yeah, I think Sauber felt they're in a position where they could kind of take a an interim driver, if you like, which is what Joe continues to be. I think they probably don't see him as the, the star of the Audi team down the line, but they probably thought, well, all things considered for another year, this is the, the best all-round package. Yeah, I mean, I think it is it is also important to bring up, even though Porcher was like the obvious other option, but it is important to bring up that his Formula 2 champion predecessor, Felipe Drugovic, in that Formula 2 season before, which is, I think, also his, his third year, was actually the clear best driver on the grid. Like, if you do a, an end-of-season F2 ranking that season, Drugovic obviously takes number one. He was just obviously the best. Not maybe always in qualifying, but it, always in how he executed weekends. And it, it sounds like Drugovic has passed up a potential very likely opportunity in a top Formula E ride. Uh, Andretti Formula E, the Porsche customer that won the title with, with Jake Dennis this past season, and that has now hired uh, Norman Nato as the teammate, with Drugovic having been a very a likely option for a long time before sort of the winds blew more cold and it sounded like he was exploring F1 options. Well, F1 options in terms of Alpha Zauber, that's now closed. Uh, I could have I could have seen that move too. Honestly, I could have seen it just on the strength of that. I think that Formula 2 title season maybe was a little bit too good to just be, it feels like, collectively forgotten in the Formula 1, you know, paradigm of talking. Just no outcry of why he doesn't have a seat apart from the apart from the partisans and i know third season i get it but yeah it's it's this is another driver i would have been very interesting to see but also at the same time again i have to go back and, and say that not necessarily at the expense of joe guanyu i remember talking to joe guanyu's boss in uk karting because that's you know that's the road he went into he you know he established himself in the european scene through i think the a, a a Sheffield-based karting team is what he was racing for, and that's why uh, me being in a, in a Sheffield university, I uh, I spoke to them. And at that point, I remember the team boss, well, raving about him as team bosses sometimes do, and telling me, like, be be certain he will be in Formula One. And I remember thinking, yeah, right, of course. Everybody says that about their, their young driver, and most people are wrong. That person was not wrong, Joe. He's not only in Formula One, but I think he's done better than a lot of us expected there's also i should not just assume that because he's plateaued a little bit in his second season after a lively start that he's hit his ceiling and if he hasn't then it's you know if there's still more for zauber to tap into then it's it's a shrewd move to keep him yeah i think with Drugovic. Uh, in terms of his Alfa Romeo shot, there were sort of paddock rumours that there was a certain amount of money he might have, but I don't think the amount of money he hoped to have was quite the amount that he ultimately was able to uh, to offer from, from his backers. So, you know, whether that was part of trying to leverage some more out of the Joe camp, I don't, I don't really know. But uh, yeah, it does seem that Sauber ultimately have uh, yeah, decided to stick because... Uh, Joe ticks all the boxes. Mark, we should very quickly look at the rest of the 24-driver market, such as it is. It just boils down to the Red Bull Alpha Tauri question and whether Williams sticks with Logan Sargent. So how do you see that playing out? A lot of that might end up hinging on how Liam Lawson performs in the Alpha Tauri in these next couple of races. Um, I thought he was genuinely quite impressive at Monza. He was definitely a step on from his Zandvoort debut when it was just about keeping afloat after being thrown in at the deep end. If he can follow Monza up with something eye-catching in Singapore and Suzuka, it gets quite interesting. 
because then the onus is on Daniel Ricciardo coming back from that hand injury to demonstrate that he's the old Daniel, not the McLaren spec Daniel in the remaining races. So two unresolved questions there about each of those drivers with Red Bull Alpha Tauri then making a call on the assumption that it sticks with Yuki Tsunoda in the other car and there's no real reason not to. If they go with Lawson, not Ricardo, what does Daniel do? There was a Williams offer there a year ago and he wasn't interested. Does he still feel that way now? Does Williams? And if Alpha Tauri go with Ricardo, would Lawson be attractive to Williams and would Red Bull allow him to go there? So Sargent hasn't nailed down his drive. He's, he's shown hints of speed. Um, probably the bizarrely the, the 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 brightest point in terms of performance was the the second race and qualifying the second race. And he, he was genuinely quick there, and he, his lap was um, disallowed for a track limit, and he drove over the wrong bit of paint. But that that's never come back. That 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 extra edge of pace that he, he showed there he did not really come back, certainly not on a consistent basis. So um, he's done okay, but he's not been bad. He's not, you wouldn't say he should definitely be dropped, but as a rookie in a tricky car, he's managed okay. And Williams could almost certainly live with going for a second year with him, trying to coax out more, which might or might not be in there. So um, yeah, I think Really, Williams will be sort of just keeping a watch and brief on what happens at uh, Alpha Tari. Well, Williams were willing to take Piastri on loan for this year. And in fact, that was the, the deal discussed with Alpine was a two year deal. There was a break in it. I think if they could, I think they could claim Piastri for 2024 before the 30th of June or something or by the 30th of June. So Williams are willing to have a two-year loan of, of someone of, of Piastri's quality, so they'd be open to it. So yeah, and I presume we were all but they were they were less they were more bad then. Well, yes, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean they're not they're not fishing in a dramatically better pool in terms of the uh, the options they've got. So uh, I don't know. I imagine I, I think that team's there hoping Logan Sargent strings together a few weekends so they can justify keeping him because he's shown some flashes but it's just not come together which isn't great and I presume we're all ruling out the possibility of any change with Perez at Red Bull he's always had that contract to the end of 24 I know there's been lots of what's going on with Perez and Red Bull but he's going to stay there next year isn't he that that's not going to be the way that Ricardo and Lawson are accommodated in the in the Red Bull stable is it no I don't think so I think it, it would have taken um, an uninjured and sensational performance from Zanvoort right through at the end of the season from Danny Ricciardo and some absolutely awful performances from Perez to make that scenario happen. And I don't, obviously, we're not going to see that. Yeah, I think we can safely see that will stay as it is. So we should get some news on all these seats in uh, the not too distant future, hopefully. But at least it means there's a little bit of driver market chat to keep us going through to the end of the season. Well, let's talk about this weekend now, Mark. There's a new technical directive coming into force. TD18, and actually for a bit of pedantry, it's worth noting it's actually an old TD that was taken off the active list and has been brought back in vastly different form. It was to do with the uh, the flexing rear wings in, in 2021. It came into effect in June, the original one, but the, the modified version is dramatically overhauled. There's all sorts in it. The upshot of it is that there's some new definitions about what is and isn't allowed in terms of flexible bodywork. So can you please explain? This has been going on for decades, this cat and mouse game on wing flexibility. You, you can't stop flexibility. They can't be made totally inflexible when, when loads are applied. It, it's physically impossible. So that opens up areas of possibility for teams, ways of deliberately engineering in some flexibility in the most favorable way. And 
The FA is not seeking to stop that because that can't be done. What is making clear in the TD is that the way the existing regulations will be applied will absolutely not tolerate any what it calls mechanisms within the wing or bodywork which facilitate the flexing. You can't have some clever little rubber bushing hidden within the internals or a linkage which when pulled in a certain way by the aerodynamic loads opens up a slot gap somewhere else in a certain way, that sort of thing. Such linkages are for the avoidance of doubt considered non-compliant. And um, it's saying that all components that influence the aerodynamic performance of a car must be rigidly fixed and immobile concerning their reference framework. And then it goes on to say they must have a uniform, solid, hard, continuous, impenetrable surface in all circumstances. You know, so um, they're getting the, in there some of the some clues as to what they think some of the teams may have been doing. Um, but it's all, you know, it's, it's that age-old search of um, getting rid of the dragon downforce when you don't need it and having it when you do. Yeah, and all teams had to submit design details for key areas by the end of last week, I think it was, so the FI could have a look in advance and they will do the various tests during the weekend as well. And yeah, it's all about relative movement of parts. So kind of uh, you, you could have a, the front wing element moving against an end plate, that kind of thing, and things being decoupled that should be coupled and all these things and partial rotations. To it. So it, it, I think one of the things they want to, well, one of the things they do say they want to see is any flexibility or deflection there is needs to be pretty much uniform broadly uniform is the term used across a component so you can't have you use the mechanisms you mentioned to have certain parts moving etc so it is tidying up and of course Val everybody always says oh who specifically is this aimed at who's cheating and obviously Aston Martin has been mentioned a few times but no nobody's been cheating on this this is all part of that push and pull that Mark referenced but probably most teams were allowed to make a few tweaks and changes obviously the faster teams will make the most but you know Williams confirmed they had to make a little bit of a tweak to the floor edges just to make sure they complied so I'd be surprised if all 10 teams didn't have to do at least something just to make sure that they were legal I mean the, the word cheating doesn't doesn't really apply does it, it is this is not of course not uh, this is not a black and white even type of rule thing and has never been this is this is the kind of formula one regulatory stuff where you you probe and see what you get away with. That's, I mean, that's always. It's not a. It's not a philosophical thing. It's not anything that we. All, everybody who watches Formula One should always recognize and sign up for the fact that this is a sport where car designers try to get one over the the people who write the regulations. And we all, I think, we've all come to to celebrate that. So, whatever specific bit of whatever that the FIA saw that prompted this. I mean, who cares, really? Again, just I had a, this really weird visceral reaction to the word cheating because I just I really I, I don't like it in this context so much because again, like that's the whole point. If if this to to somebody's cheating, they're they're watching the the wrong thing. They're watching the wrong sport. Well, this, this is the problem because the discourse. The, the reason I use that word is that's the discourse that sort of appears on social media surrounding it, and it's it's massively reductive. And um, I did a piece for for the race website explaining how this. TD was working and I spoke to Tim Goss, the FI uh, single-seated technical director in uh, where were we last time, Monza, about it. And so he sort of ran through all the reasoning for it. And it's all very sensible and logical. And it all comes back to what Mark was saying, that you can't have things that are completely rigid because people say, oh, black and white rules. And it's like, well, unfortunately, the laws of physics don't work like that. It's not that simple. Hugely complicated sport, Formula One. And 
yeah, th- this is just part of that ongoing process. There will be, I'm sure, many more technical directives about uh, about bodywork flexibility in the future because teams learn new things, have new ideas, have new sneaky ways of of doing things. And yeah, as you say, Val, that is absolutely what they're there to do. You work in the grey areas, and then those grey areas get clarified and tidied up and the FI say no we don't want to see that we don't want to see that we don't want to see that and this technical directive does contain a series of things they basically say we do not want to see this and there are some things they say yeah this is okay this is okay this is not okay so yeah interesting to see where there's any fallout from it Mark would you expect any particular performance swings from it obviously because the field's quite compact it wouldn't take much you know one team gains a tenth another loses a tenth so it's possible but I'm not expecting to see any transformation or anything what do you you think we'll see any particular evidence that it shuffles the pack no I'm not expecting any um the the reason why fingers were pointed at Aston Martin was because it dropped off the pace significantly from around Spain haven't been right you know probably the second fastest car overall up until that point, which it, it it's a status it's not really um, managed to to repeat. Uh, but I, no, whether, whether that was what was going on there, we'll never know, probably. Um, but I don't see anything now because it may be that the FIA have spotted it on one car and it would what would normally happen would be the... the Say to them, we don't. We you need to put this right. We don't want to see this, um, in, you know, from the next race, and then subsequently writes a technical directive which applies to everybody, but it's based upon what they've seen on one car. So it could be that others have, you know, have been doing something similar, but it haven't been the focus of that attention, and they may now have to make similar adjustments that. Maybe an, another car that was picked on initially has had to make a few races back. In which case, yeah, you 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 could sort of make a you know a priori um, deduction sort of <laughs> thing. But um, and, and seriously, no, I, I, I think uh, it, the grid will look very familiar in Singapore. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that in this process, this TD was originally published well in its in its renewed form. I should say the reason that they had it for a few years and then withdrew it is they felt they'd incorporated it into the technical regulations for this year but then teams started doing other things which is why they had to bring this TD back in vastly expanded form but the process is that they issue the TD in draft form and then they get feedback from teams so teams can say oh how about this how about that there's a little bit of a back and forth and that also gives an opportunity for teams who will suspect other teams are doing things to say oh well what if somebody did that do we need a phrasing that covers that so that there's a there's a, a process in that before they issue the definitive td that will have allowed any suggestions of what people might be doing to have been thrown in there so i th- i think it's a good process I- i'm not always delighted with the way the TD process is a bit too clandestine at times. But I think when it comes to this, it's it's just very straightforward approach to a complicated situation. That's the best way to put it. It's not targeted at anyone. And it's certainly not going to be aimed at pulling back Red Bull. In fact, Red Bull have such good, clear understanding of their car. I don't think they're relying on any monstrous trickery. It's just they've absolutely nailed the car concept and are exploiting it correctly. So yeah, won't expect any major changes there. And if you'd like to hear more on Flexi Wings, have a listen to the latest episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, where Gary Anderson talks at length about bendy bodywork, as well as a plethora of other tech topics. If you've ever had even the vaguest interest in F1 Tech, you'll definitely enjoy the Race F1 Tech Show, and you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. 
we'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, Val, one area where there will be some changes this weekend is the circuit. It's modified for the 2023 race. So can you explain what's changed and why? And of course, whether it will have that much of an impact on the weekend as a whole. Yeah, it'll, it'll be a, yeah, it'll be a pretty pretty visual change because I think one of the more familiar uh, parts of the of the circuit is, is being temporarily removed. Now, obviously, just imagine this visually or pull up an onboard or just... I'm not going to have you do homework for the, for the podcast. Just imagine this visually, you know, coming out of the, the sharp turn 14 right-hander onto what I believe is is called the Raffles Avenue, which is a sort of colonial heritage type of name. But anyway, you, you would normally go into a uh, right-hander, left-hander, left-hander, right-hander, right-hander, left-hander in very quick succession through those, you know, that twisty bit of the circuit. It's very memorable also because through one of those corners, uh, Nelson Piquet deliberately crashed his his car in 2008, and currently that's in the news again for reasons that we will not touch upon in in this podcast because there's only so much of running time. Uh, but yeah, anyway, four of those corners, the first four, so it's you know right, left, left, right. That bit is gone now. That includes the run under the tunnel uh, with with like a well, it's it's sort of a tunnel. Everybody calls it a tunnel, and when I look at it, it doesn't look like much of a my understanding of a tunnel to mean like the Monaco tunnel, that's a tunnel. Anyway, that part will not be there this year. Those those four corners in quick succession said it'll be all be a straight down the Raffles Avenue before going into uh, this right left and then going into two fast left handers to to end the the lap. Now why they've done it is there is a redevelopment going on in the area of the the floating arena at the side of the track that is a, a long-term redevelopment to turn it into uh, a different type of national arena for events called NS Square. Obviously, the difference is that four very sharp, basically 90 degrees corners are are gone, which you know very low speed corners. You can see like cars don't really get to ac- accelerate massively in at any part of that track, so. Cars that don't love the low-speed corner so much, like most obviously McLaren, will appreciate that you know, quite a bit, presumably, that you don't have that section where you tiptoe through the track. Uh, the, length of the, the length of the lap is obviously down, and the lap time is down. Although, you know, revisiting that today, uh, I think some of the original estimates were like 20 seconds off, and I'd, 
I'd love to know where those estimates came from. I don't see how you how you shaved off twenty seconds there. I think you need an extra shortcut yeah, to achieve yeah. that. You'd need yeah, you'd need to have like a, a a boost a boost pad somewhere on on that straight to make that happen. No, it it, it sounds like like single digit reduction in lap time, but like maybe close to ten there thereabouts. Uh, and compensating for that, the race length has been increased by, I think, one lap this year from 61 to 62, which still, if you do the maths, means that the race is marginally shorter, but I, I can't imagine that it's shorter in a way to where it, it affects the drivers, to where the drivers get much of a rest. I think they will, from a physical standpoint, appreciate uh, not having those four quarters and just having the, the extra straight to rest think that will be quite handy in the in the Singapore heat yeah it's very it's very hot and humid and even even at night I mean it's it's better at night but it's still massively humid so yeah it's uh it's not particularly fun for those of us of a, of a more European climate disposition to to wander around in even even at night so yeah it's it's a really physical race but in terms of the car, it will you know probably help some cooling a bit. It will certainly help you know the tires. None of those extra traction zones coming out of the four ninety degrees corners. Uh, you can sort of keep the temperature a little bit down coming into the, the final section. In terms of overtaking, I don't know. I'm like we've seen situations where people have said, "Ooh, this might help overtaking." Then we go to the race and nothing materially changes. And I look at that bit of the track, and you know, obviously sector three starts and you immediately go into that acute right-hander and that's you know you get the the second drs zone on the run to it it's not so long you get that acute right-hander and then you get that run out this new run out on the raffles avenue without the extra four corners which is it is quite long and it does take you to a sharp right-hander but i wonder if whatever car is trying to overtake is going to gain on that run to the right-hander preceding it with DRS, then lose all the gains going through the corner and then not be able to really meaningfully pull out alongside without DRS on this new straight because there is no DRS on this new straight. I presume because it's, I mean, we call it a straight because it's flat out, but there is sort of a, a pretty considerable left-hander kink going through it. So I, I would imagine that's the reason why they haven't done it. It's, I can't, I can't imagine this will transform the race necessarily i mean still singapore overtaking still going to be really quite complicated yeah well it's never a bad thing to throw in a little bit of a change but yeah i don't think it's going to be much of a, a curveball but mark looking ahead to the actual singapore grand prix itself unless you've got some reason why red bull won't be the team to beat this weekend i guess the big question is really whether sergio perez can get back to winning formula circuit where he did triumph last year well i can't really provide a convincing case for red bull not winning other than Singapore is more prone to random interference than possibly any other track. I mean, random interference from MRT trains, as Red Bull uh, discovered some years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to go on to say. It, 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 what other track can claim that a retirement because of a passing underground train, which took Mark Webber's Red Bull out in 2008, um, or a planned crash that <laughs> subverted the result, also 08? But no, in a, in a straightforward running, despite the lesser importance of aero efficiency, this track. Uh, the the RB19 has got so many other qualities which make it the best. It, it's all rooted in the way its underbody and suspension are configured to work together that it should prevail regardless. Perez has been making some progress from his mid-season slump and this is where he really came back from a similar slump last year. Um, but that was helped enormously by the confusion about Verstappen's fuel level and qualifying which 
prevented them from setting a proper time, leaving them on row four of the grid on a track where you you, you, know, you can't pass at the best of times. It was um, even even worse last year because it was a damp track with a dry line down. So there was no, you know, there's no, you had one line on which you could you could drive on the approach to the corners. So uh, that Perez win was very impressive in the way he soaked up the pressure from Leclerc and the way he controlled the, the restarts and stuff. But it, it was it wasn't on pace over Verstappen. You know, he wasn't taking on Verstappen and and coming out on top like he did earlier this year in Baku, for example. Uh, so circumstantial, even though it was impressive. But I, I think we can expect a strong performance from him again. It, it's it's the sort of track that suits him, and he he, he has a confidence um, built around that. Um, but for me, a, a you know strong performance would be a, a solid second of a stop, and. Anything else would be rather head-turning. I'm not expecting them to turn my head. Yeah, I was just thinking as well, you mentioned some of the unusual things that happened here. We had a track invader here as well, didn't we, in 2015? We did. We had a, a drunk a drunk man on the bridge, yeah. Yeah, it's an uh, admirable uh, achievement <laughs> in a way. I don't know quite how you managed to... <laughs> No idea how you managed to get onto the track here because it's it's pretty difficult. It's pretty difficult when the track's not in use during the day when it's meant to be open to actually gain access to the track. So yeah. I've no idea how he managed to do it. I don't know how he did it, but it looked like he wasn't aware that it was track. I think he thought it was the um, the access road at the side because he did look rather startled when the uh, car came around the corner. I think he was just looking for somewhere to relieve himself after a heavy night. <laughs> I think it's a bit like, you'll probably find this, Mark, I know when when, uh, when we go trackside on Grand Prix, sometimes you sort of be wandering around and I'm always very conscious of, don't just sort of completely zone out and think about something else while you're walking around because it'd be very easy just to <laughs> just to walk through one of the gaps. Or something. Yes. I've never done it, but I, I think it's probably for the best. There's just that thing in the back of your mind just saying, pay attention yeah. just in case. The easiest place to because, do that uh, would be the chicane at Monaco, wouldn't it? When you're coming down the hill to the chicane. Well, wait, yeah, there's, no, there's, there's nothing, nothing at all. Yeah, to you're, stop you're, you're, <laughs> Yeah, you're, st- you're stood basically, uh, basically on the track, although outside of track limits, because as we know, those painted white lines are powerful in uh, in modern in modern motorsport. But yeah, I think Verstappen's favourite, isn't he? And Val, do you want to make Perez's case for how he can find a way to uh, to beat Verstappen without some kind of assistance? Because it's worth noting that the two races this year that he has won, he has had some outside help yeah. in terms of a bit of bad luck for Verstappen to get ahead. He's done a great job once ahead, but he that they're not straightforward ones and obviously Singapore last year Verstappen had to have bought what would have been a comfortable pole lap because he didn't have enough fuel Ivory qualifies second beats him off the line and then keeps him at bay at a track where it's difficult to overtake then then maybe and I theoretically he, he, like you know performance fluctuations exist he can out qualify him it's not outside the realm of possibility certainly it would be insulting to Sergio Perez to suggest otherwise but like even last year I mean Verstappen was just clearly quicker that weekend right if if you put them all, if you put them both at an at an empty track together, you had them hashing out time trial style. There's only one winner. Um, so yeah, if if if, it, if the balance of power is the same this weekend, then obviously there's there's little reason to to expect a sudden swing in the results after ten straight ten straight Verstappen wins too. Uh, but I think Paris probably will be closer, but you know closer doesn't automatically. Inst- equating to massive intrigue because there have been weekends where he has been okay close but there have also been weekends where he has been just in another time zone basically and i don't think you'll be in another time zone this weekend but i i still like mark and like you do i still i expect him to to have Perez's number because he did last year 
And Mark, do you want to have a stab at the chasing pack behind? This one would be sensitive to any little tiny fluctuations from the, the technical directive on flexible bodywork, admittedly. But with the form we've seen so far, who would you tip to, to win that battle for best of the rest? I'd be quite intrigued um, about McLaren's prospects here, just um, in the way that uh, the, the, the tyre part of the equation is always pretty important here. It's very, very sensitive to tie grip, and that car has got a way of working its tires very effectively in qualifying, especially. And it, it, it's not going to be hurt too much by its uh, relatively draggy um, performances on the straight. So I'd be interested to, to look at that. Um, Mercedes should be, I would think, better than uh, th- they were at Monza. So yeah, I'd, I'd be looking there. Ferrari, mm, it, it, it's. Some in some aspects, it's a good circuit for Ferrari. Though it's pretty good on the slow corners. Um, so yeah, probably probably very very close between those three teams. And um, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, McLaren was the quickest of them in qualifying. But the 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 margins are so small. You, you could have the fastest car and end up being of, of that group and end up being the third on the grid. You know, so it's all going to be down to timing and the, the actual the, the merit and the performance of the driver on on the critical moment as it should be but that's always an interesting little battle behind the red bulls and of course if red bull hit trouble that'll be the battle for victory uh, well i'm indebted as always to my guests mark hughes and val Harunji for their insights on this podcast and for all the latest from the world of f1 as well as moto gp formula e indycar head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen if you're going there check out our many other podcasts including the race f1 tech show and bring back v10s and if video is your thing head to our youtube channel with battle about to commence at marina bay stay with us for everything you need to know from the singapore grand prix the athletic 